Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. Hey folks, this week's guest is a much-loved figure in the media and broadcasting space, Indira Naidu. After graduating with a journalism degree, Indira secured a cadetship with the ABC in South Australia. By the age of 21, she was interviewing the Premier of South Australia, and not too long after that was hosting and reporting for some of the country's most distinguished news and current affairs programs, including ABC's late edition, Nightly News, and as an anchor and reporter for SBS TV's The World News Tonight. By appearances, her career had a remarkably smooth and easy trajectory. However, Indira's background and upbringing had plenty of adversity, which no doubt contributed to her high-achieving work ethic. She brings so much warmth and humanity to her interviews. I've always felt like everything's going to be okay when she delivers the news, even when it's bad news. Indira's first book, The Edible Balcony, saw her embark on a mission to transform her tiny 13th floor balcony in Sydney into a bountiful kitchen garden. 13 is clearly a lucky number for her. The book became a bestseller and has been reprinted many times over. This prompted another book, The Edible City, which likewise a bestseller and has seen Indira lead a quiet revolution throughout our cities whereby an army of urban gardeners are turning concrete into crops and harvests into hope. At present, Indira hosts Weekend Nightlife on ABC Radio across Australia. Please welcome to the blank canvas, Indira Naidu. Indira, thank you for coming along to your house. My pleasure. Pleasure to have you here. This is completely surreal for me because you're like a sister to my wife. What do you mean? Like, as I was reading about you and even meeting you today, your aura, your beauty, your pathos, the way you write, you're a media darling, <laughs> you're, you're, you're married to a producer, you have a production company together, Yeah. you're, you know, exotic. <laughs> <laughs> He's white, Sydney. There's just a few parallels to... Possibly. To, I've never to, thought about it. I mean, I do adore Kate, so that, that's a lovely compliment to be compared to her. But, yeah, I suppose there are a lot of commonalities. Yeah. I mean, it hadn't occurred to me till I was reading your books over the last few days and I was reading some of the things your husband would say when you say, hey, we're going to do a garden on our 13th floor balcony mm. and these conversations and him becoming a... Um, what was that? A hardened garden partner or, or something in the trenches. I can't remember what that line was exactly. But there was so many moments where I'm like, oh my God, this is just so trippy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm I'm lucky to have someone who his immediate reaction, he would deny this, is always that's a crazy idea. It's never going to work. And then by the end of it, he's more passionate about the idea than I am. Like he he just takes a, a little bit of time because he looks at all the things that, I mean, like a good director, producer, all yeah. the things that may go wrong, all the things that haven't really been thought through, whereas I'm much more intuitive and I just go, come on, just embrace it. And then I struck all these problems and he goes, remember, that's what I told you was going to happen. And we work it out together. It's all a lot of fun. But it is good having someone that comes from a slightly more uh 
thoughtful um, sort of uh, point of view, I guess. Well, there's parallels there, but I've I've learnt things along the way with Kate. In the beginning, she would say something like, every day there's a bright idea about something. And in the beginning, I'd go, oh, I'm not sure. And I'd start pointing out the problems. We had our biggest fights at that time and she'd go, I don't want to hear about the problems right now. Just go, what a great idea. That's fantastic. Let's do it. She said, I'll have forgotten about it tomorrow and I'll have moved on to the next one. So you don't have to worry yourself about it. And so <laughs> so I learned in time to just give her a fantastic acknowledgement. When she comes up with that idea, I go, wow, that would be fantastic. And she goes, wouldn't it? That's great. And Boom, and then we move on to the next thing. Well, the problem Mark has is I don't forget it the next day. <laughs> so that's why he's found he has to, right at the moment the idea is mentioned, suddenly he realises we could be living with this idea for 20 years, so I better just get in there early and just say these are all the things that can go wrong. I do tend to not forget about the idea that I want to sort of right. accomplish. Yeah. I hang in there. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay, all right, well, there's a point of difference. Now, Kate doesn't always forget it either, but there's always such a rapid fire, um, you know, creation every day that, um, yeah, that was one of the biggest things I, I learnt along the way. Right, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, look, this is kind of surreal because I feel like I'm not worthy interviewing you oh, because you are, seriously, you're such a fantastic interviewer and just so great on radio and TV and all the rest of it. Oh, thank you. So it was an interesting feeling coming along thinking, oh, I'm going to interview you. What? I honestly, I've, I feel like I'm learning all the time. I, I feel quite incompetent actually a lot of the time, even though I might have been doing broadcasting and interviewing for, what, 30 years, I still think, oh, is this, am I doing an okay job? Is this... Um, working, um, you know, was that a stupid question to ask? I, I don't think. Really? Yeah, I don't know if it's other interviews like that, but I never lose that sense of, wow. okay, you know, are you doing this okay? Have you have yeah. you done enough research? I'm probably an over-researcher. That's probably my biggest problem. Right. Sometimes it's best just to go with the vibe, you know, and just have a conversation rather than think, yeah. oh, did I get that date right? And yeah, now yeah, how do yeah. I move the conversation to this topic? Yeah. No, that's definitely the best way of doing it. I mean, I have a few sort of points there if we run out of things to do, but every interview, off it goes and it goes where it goes and you yeah. just follow the interesting cornerstones yeah, and, and things, don't you? Yeah, and just trust that. Yeah, trust no, that. that's right. The other thing I like about your interviews is they don't sound like interviews, they sound like conversations. Yeah, And that's Thank you. kind of what I'm trying to do with this thing as well. Wow, very interesting. Having been a news anchor for so long, like I don't know about you, but I've kind of stopped watching the news this year because it's just, it's intense, it's, uh, you know, a lot of fear-mongering, most of it doesn't feel fair and balanced. It doesn't do me any good. I feel a lot worse after watching it and I'm kind of like, well, you know what, I'll find out the need to know things. But other than that, I'm not going to watch the nightly news. So mm. that's what I've, I've turned it off this year. How have you, with that many years of anchoring the news, how have you managed to stay so warm and wonderful <laughs> working in that world. I actually tuned out of nightly news or daily news probably about 20 years ago, actually, quite a long time ago, in terms of what is the news story of the day. Right. Uh, because I found, particularly when I stopped doing international news coverage for SBS, that was such an intense time. It was, you know, war crimes coverage we were doing in, in Serbia, uh, East Timor, you know, the graves were being found in, in East Timor after their independence struggle. It was just such an intense time of news coverage for me as an anchor at that time. I was just over 
overloaded and I think I'd got to a stage too where just that bad side of what humans can do, that was all we were reflecting back to our audience, which was damaging for them, but particularly as the conduit for that information, I was realising it was damaging for me. So that year, straight after I did my last SBS broadcast, I don't think I watched a news bulletin at all. I didn't read a newspaper as such. And my husband's a news junkie. He thought it was very disturbing and, you know, I probably needed some help. But what I just needed to detox. And I found that I was searching information just the same as I always did, but completely different outlets. Mm. So I'd go to, and this was the beginning of blogs before most people even had heard of them. And because I was looking for different sources and I'd just find a mother who was blogging about her worm farm. And I'd go, what's a worm farm? And what's a blog? It was just not covered in the usual daily media cycle and I realised there was another universe going out there that I had not been dipping in because of this weird triangle I was living in of, you know, where I lived, the people I was living with, they were all in the media as well, the people I was working with were all in the media and I was in a silo which we now know is becoming a huge problem for connection and creativity. But that was when I'd stepped outside of it and just – when, what else is going on in the world? And it's very confronting as a journalist because you think you know and that's your job to know and tell everyone else what's going on. And I realised I had no idea. And so much, I think, of the last 20 years away from serious full-time news broadcasting has been to find out what's really going on, not what the news is telling you or what journalists are telling you, what's really going on. Yeah. Wow, that's really interesting. Mm. I'm sure you've got lots of friends that uh, still work there and in mm-hmm. the media and do you have that conversation with them? Oh, they all thought I was loopy. You know, <laughs> why would you walk away from a position that you'd spent your whole life building towards and studying and, and working towards and just literally just go, no, I want to try something else. What do you mean? That is it. Like, this is amazing. So at the time, uh, I think almost everyone, including my husband, went, okay, right, Uh, But I was really confident in a way. I didn't know what it was that I was searching for, but I was confident there was another way of accessing information, real stories that were happening around the world other than through a news prism. So, yes, so a lot of my friends and colleagues were surprised. I think they continue to be also because the other flip has been in a year where, you know, we've lost about 50 of my class of 1990 that started at the ABC with me as journalists and cadets, and they've all now gone with redundancies and and all these terrible cuts to the ABC. So this is a year that I've actually come back into the fold in a full-time capacity and one of the last of my era. I think I'm I'm about the only one left there over 50. Wow. So And they've been shocked by that. Why would you come back in in the worst time in, in broadcasting? But in a lot of ways, it's the best time, particularly at the ABC. You know, I find yeah. that without the ABC, the important work that it's doing with uh, coverage of the bushfires, particularly here in New South Wales, uh, but also, you know, around the country, and its coverage of the COVID pandemic, it's the best place for me to be. And I'm just so grateful. The timing, yeah. I didn't know those things were going to happen, but the timing is just perfect to show how important the ABC is. So I've done the flip again of, you know, when everyone's just sort of leaving in droves and I've sort of come back into the fold. Wow. Trailblazer. Well, I wouldn't call it that, <laughs> but I do go against, I swim against the tide, against the stream. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah well, I want to talk more about nightlife later because I think it's a perfect fit for you. Oh, thank you. Love the conversations. 
And, um, and it's, yeah, it's not hardcore news. It's just you seem to be really interested in your guests and you have a chat and a lot of artists and writers and yeah. lots of different interesting people. It's kind of what I'm enjoying about this. It's an excuse to have a really quality conversation for an hour, isn't it, where you don't have to just sort of talk around the social veneer. You can actually ask questions and have a deep conversation. Well, it's a privilege in media now to have a half an hour, an hour conversation that mm. Airs nationally. I mean, that's the other thing that people actually listen. You know, we've got an audience of 500,000. It's incredible. Yeah. And a lot of the conversations are podcast. And so we can get up to 800,000, a million for some of the interviews at Nightlife. I mean, it's unheard of in the media. And because of COVID, obviously, everyone's been locked down. Yeah. So you can get basically anyone you want to talk to in the world. I spent a whole hour with Billy Bragg talking about skiffle music. Wow. I mean, when does that ever happen? Normally he's touring, normally he's busy, normally you have to go through multiple of, you know, That's... agents and publicists. But now um, so many creatives are desperate, they're locked down, they, they're frustrated and they, and they want to talk about their art. So, yeah. again, a perfect time to do this style of show with the format and the time that, you know, we're given. Yeah. Such a privilege, yeah. 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 With these podcasts going off, what do you think the future is for radio? Obviously, you're on the ABC, but I mean, I sort of think, wow, commercial radio, there's so many podcasts doing such big numbers. What does that mean for the future of radio in general? Any thoughts on that? Well, see, this is the other fascinating thing because in terms of radio, I still see myself as quite a youngster to the format. You know, I'm learning a lot about how it works. It's quite different from television, which I... Was expecting, but in you know the commonalities and the differences, I wasn't expecting in a lot of ways. Yes, of course, it's having conversations and it's talking, but the intimacy in radio, I just wasn't expecting. Mm. Uh, you really feel that they are there with you, you are there with them, and because yeah. it's been pandemic time and a lot of people have been in lockdown around the country, you have really been their only connection to the outside world. Yeah. So in a way, it's been like those eras of of war broadcasting where they that voice, you know, into your radio or your into your phone has been your only contact with what's going out there. Yeah. And sometimes you want to know the bad bits and other times you you go, I've had such a terrible shitty day. Don't tell me about how many people are dying from this thing. You know, tell me about the wonder of, you know, what it is to it could be anything. Like bikinis, for instance. We did the history of bikinis a couple of weeks ago. Like what? Yeah. And people love that because yeah. everyone's got the story about swimming costumes and bikinis and going yeah. to the beach and yeah. splashing and yeah. having that life that they wish they were having at the moment. So everyone's living through nostalgia a lot. Yeah. And one of the things we can do through radio very easily because we don't have those technical restrictions of television or filmmaking. Yeah. Well, you just need a mic, yeah. and um, I've you know I've been broadcasting from our spare office um, at times when there've been corona outbreaks or clusters or whatever it might be, waiting for a COVID test yeah. to come back. Now I wouldn't have that if I was working in television. It'd be really frustrating, and yeah. and I've loved the the lightness and the litheness of that of just being able to hear. Yeah. Here's a mic, off you go, plug it into your phone and off you go. You've got a show happening. Yeah. The thing that is confronting that I found is just how much 
of you, your audience want and how much control and everything, you know. So you have to develop another skin, which you develop anyway when you're in, you know, public life or broadcasting, but it's another skin because they want to peel it all away. They want to get right in there and they get to know you so well. So they know the things that, you know, that only your close family members may know to say, but, and it can be inappropriate too with social media, they'll, they'll tweet it or something and you'll go, hang on, that's a bit out of line. That's right. And uh, so that can be quite difficult. That's what I've had to learn too, is how you have a a very open, genuine, authentic relationship, but that there are still boundaries that everyone needs to keep to because radio doesn't want boundaries. You know, they just, it wants to suck you right in and into that person person's head and into their body. Totally. And you really need to share with the guest as well, can't you? There's yeah. got to be a sort of a two-way flow there. You do. Or and that's- it just, you don't get the gold. Yeah. And, it, and, and, it, and it's not as enjoyable yeah, either, is it? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I am a people person, but, mm. you know, I think quite private really as well. And so just to talk about my husband isn't something I would normally do on a, on a show, mm. but that's you know, that people want that. They want to un- hear about your life and your family and what you ate for breakfast and things like that. And I'm not used to really sharing that sort of detail, but yeah. I've become more comfortable with that and understanding, you know, how to do that and, and do it in a way that I don't particularly feel that it's that it's helping people get to know me, which is important when you do a radio show, yeah. but also giving me a sense of I've got my own private, you know, yeah. sort of boundary there. I think you're getting the balance right. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Do you mind if we go talking about like personal things? Do you mind if we go back to the start for people that don't know your story yeah, and how sure. you wound up in Australia? Because um, I think that's really interesting. And yeah. Clearly, there was some significant adversity, and that's created the person that you are today. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so I'm actually fifth generation South African Indian. So my forefathers came to South Africa in the 1840s from India to work in the sugarcane plantations and uh, and I was born in South Africa. But the interesting thing is it's quite removed from my Indianness in a way. So South Africa had a significant Indian community but they had no interaction with India once they were in South Africa. Right. And because of apartheid, which was the racial segregation way of life that the South African white government set up. The Indians were in their own pocket, the Africans were in their own pocket, and so were the whites. So you were, again, very isolated from everyone else. So there was lots of just being with your group and your family. So my parents, grandparents and their great-grandparents didn't really grow up with a sense of all the other things that were going on in their country. And my father and mother, their generation was the first one to start challenging and questioning, you know, the racism of South Africa and the apartheid system and why whites were higher than blacks and Indians and why you couldn't go to a beach if you were black and you couldn't go to that school and everyone was all separate. You had to sit at the back of the bus. All these things, no one really challenged. They just, you know, well, they weren't allowed to either. You know, it was all enforced by by guns and, and all of that. So my parents were very fortunate that my um, grandparents were well enough by the time they got to high school to say, look, you can have a different life than we've had. We're going to support you to get a tertiary education, which no one could get in South Africa unless you were white. We'll send you overseas for your training. So they both went overseas and, and trained in their various areas. But when they came back, 
and they went to India actually for their training. And when they came back to South Africa, unfortunately they found because of apartheid they couldn't work in their area of specialty. So dad couldn't be a dentist, my mum couldn't be a translator. So that was when they decided we have to do that big decision and leave South Africa, leave everything we knew. I'd just been born and that was when they decided to leave. They couldn't take me out of the country legally because I was a child uh, who was a non-white child. And so they smuggled me over the border out of South Africa. And um, we went to- Were you to, in a car? Yeah, in a yeah, car. Yeah. I was just under blankets in the back of a car. Right. On the back seat. And we stopped at a border and the guards made sure that there was just mum and dad, there was no one else in the car. And they prodded the blankets with their rifle butts. And fortunately, I was asleep, mum said, and- she was terrified I'd wake up and they didn't know there was a baby under there. So I smuggled across and we eventually settled in Zambia. And from there it was just, you know, um, f moving from country to country, finding, I guess, the ideal country that they could bring up their family. So my sister was born in Zambia. My younger sister was born when we were living in England. And then we eventually came to Australia in the 19, mid 1970s after, you know, living in all these countries. And wow. Gough Whitlam had just come to power in 72. And he was offering these migrant assisted packages. So you could come to Australia with only a professional uh, qualification. You didn't need any money. And I think we only had like 50 pounds to our name anyway, wow. because my father had to resit his Indian dentistry degree in England because of the racism there, they wouldn't accept a degree unless it was from an English university. So we were struggling. He was, re you know, just doing his last part of his degree. He had three children. He was also trying to work part-time. And so when Whitlam came to power, it was just seen, wow, what, you'll fly the whole family here, give us a job and a house. And we, we were completely set up. So they jumped at the chance and we found ourselves in a little town on the east coast of Tasmania called St Mary's, okay, and they needed a, a dentist, a local dentist there. And that's sort of where our initial, you know, sort of um, introduction, introduction to Australian life was. And it was just the most extraordinary experience. As you can imagine, Tasmania in the 1970s, they hadn't had much immigration then. Uh, so we were a real novelty as well. And for us, the last place we'd been living in was inner city London. So as a kid, I just knew traffic and, you know, the, the chaos that goes with that. And suddenly it was just bush and kangaroos and wombats and Tasmanian devils and possums and, you know, amazing gum trees and bush rock. And that was how I'd walk to school every day with all these critters around me. So it was an extraordinary uh, contrast for me. And I just loved it. I just um, got stuck into the difference. Um, and we were special in a very strange way, which a lot of immigrants don't experience because that community was quite isolated. They didn't have any negative stereotypes of what immigrants would be or Indians or black people or anything like that. So we were special. So they would fight to sit next to me at school because I was new and exotic. And the kids uh, and the people in the township were saying with my parents, they were just, we were always being pulled from someone's barbecue to the next. And, you know, we had social, you know, invites all the time because That's we were lovely. just so special. Wow. And uh, now I look back on it, a completely different experience, obviously, than most uh, immigrant families get in Australia. And we were very lucky. And I think that that was the reason we developed so differently to so many immigrants of my era that now I meet and I, and I think, oh, we why are you like that? Oh, of course. You grew up in Footscray in, in Melbourne and you weren't 
accepted or welcomed in the same way. And I think we're very lucky because that set us up for then all the opportunities and, and the different way that we looked at life because of that way that that little town in Tasmania welcomed us. Wow, that's beautiful. It's amazing. The um, sugarcane thing was interesting. There's another parallel with Kate. Kate's um, father's parents were sugarcane plantation workers that went from the Philippines to Hawaii. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. So there's a whole bunch of those. those, (laughs) Right. Yeah. Okay. Of of those little things. And he came in, well, it would have been the, the late 60s, early 70s. There was the white Australia policy. And initially he wasn't able to come. He was a Marine and had a one night stand with Kate's mum, who's you know, blonde, blue-eyed in Adelaide. She got pregnant. She wrote him a letter. He left the Marines and moved to Australia, but initially he couldn't come. Right. So, um, yeah, there's some interesting things. Anyway, when you next chat with Kate, you can ask her about that. About the that. sugar cane, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, wow. And so you then you wound up in South Australia as well, didn't you? Yes. At so- school? Yeah, so we uh, did most of my primary and early high schooling in Tasmania, and then my parents they had got ANC scholarships in South Africa to go and study in India. So the ANC had been very seminal in their education and both of them were very passionate. What's the ANC? So that's the African National Congress. So they okay, were the right. organized, political organisation right. that um, were agitating for, you know, full voting rights for, for black people in, in South Africa. Gotcha. So through the support, you know, there were lots of organisations who supported them. So, like, the Soviets gave them money and all the, and all these different organisations, and they used that money to then create the next generation of leaders, which is where my, my parents benefited from. Right. And when they uh, came back, obviously they felt very indebted to uh, the ANC and the, the whole freedom movement there. So when Zimbabwe got independence in 1980... Uh, my father, particularly my father, really wanted to go there and, and help them with their reconstruction. They'd lost a lot of their professional white people and yep. so he decided to take us back there. So we were pulled out of Tasmania into, you know, Civil War Zimbabwe, which was pretty crazy. There was a lot of mayhem there and they were still at the tail end of the Civil War. So we went into that. We saw a, a bit of the fighting. We saw, you know, a lot of the end parts. It had really affected a lot of the kids at my school. A lot of them had been pulled out of school to fight in the Civil War. So oh. they were coming back as child soldiers back into the school system. So oh, wow. compared, you know, to these kids going to a private school in Tasmania, that was like, wow. Uh, and they had, you know, horrific injuries, you know, the arms that had been blown and, and you know, horrible, um, you know, skin conditions and things. And it was, you know, a 13-year-old's been fighting in, in a war. I, we just couldn't get our heads around it. Yeah. So that was an experience. And then when things got really bad in Zimbabwe under Robert Mugabe's regime, we came back to Australia, to South Australia, okay. which is where I did my um, year 12 and my, you know, my um, tertiary education. Yeah. Wow. And you were ducks. Uh, if, yeah, if my yeah, my year twelve is good. Yeah, did you have to study hard to um, achieve that? Uh, look, the thing that did remain in our family, which you find in a lot of Indian families and ethnic families, is it, there isn't a, a, a lot of emphasis on academic achievement. It, it's yeah. a it's drummed into you from a very young age. Yeah. You have to study hard. You have to do well. You have to get top marks. You have to yeah. be the best, all that sort of stuff. So you couldn't get away from that. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so I guess compared to now looking back on the average kid and, and sort of life and high school life, our life was very 
focused on achievement and again uh, not only academic achievement but sport debating you know plays you, you name it uh, it was all about doing the best making sure that all the opportunities you were given and that your parents always made sure they emphasized the sacrifices yeah. they made and they did make a lot yeah uh, that you were uh, making the most of it so there was never a moment to dawdle or twiddle or, or dream or just, you know, <laughs> jump through the field or anything like that. I, In a lot of ways, I wished we had more time to that sort of play that we didn't really get to do a lot um, as children, but I'm making up for it now. But, yes, yeah, so it was all about study hard and, and get good results so you can set yourself up for a, a good career, whatever that was. Usually, unfortunately, it was probably to do with law or medicine or, you know, that sort of thing. That, yeah, that I was going to ask that because um, that's the, the thing you'd expect so how were your parents when you said you want to do journalism? Oh, they just went, why? We don't know. And this is, again, a very Indian thing. We don't know anyone who's a journalist. And they didn't, and we didn't, obviously. Uh, so they couldn't even picture what that meant. And it's especially in the, you know, the 70s, 80s uh, and late 80s when I was studying, there was no one at all, like, you know, television. Like, like you on no, television? No, not at all. It, no. was, it was all absolutely Anglo and, yeah. and male and old male Anglo. Yeah. So, yes, I can understand they were being, you know, perfectly right, I guess. Um, how did you see a place for yourself in that? But the thing is we'd always been brought up with BBC radio and news. My parents were also very obsessive, you know, news junkies, particularly my father. So that was all we ever saw. So ABC Radio and ABC Television, we were allowed one hour of television every night and half an hour had to be a news program. Wow. Had to be a news program. And this is from a very young age, wow. you know, like from five or six so years old. So you weren't watching Happy Days and MASH while well, we were watching that? Well, I could, that. <laughs> but I could only watch one, you know, one of them. So, And we had to listen to, oh, sorry, AM in the morning as well. So Radio AM was the how we woke up. To, to every morning, that was how we woke up. So they didn't realise how immersive that was for us, I guess. So all all three of us were very involved in communication and, and arts because of that, uh, even though I think our parents would have preferred us to go into more the sciences or, or that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. But um, for me, looking back, it was inevitable that it would be some sort of journalism and broadcasting and also because we moved around a lot. So I was very used to meeting new people, making new friends, finding it the lay of the land really quickly and, and finding out what, what was going on. Developing your people skills yeah. and adapting. So journalism was, you know, yeah. um, always going to be, I think, what I ended up doing in some way. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. That's really cool. So you, you became a cadet at, with, who was it? Was ABC it with the ABC TV? in yeah. South Australia? Yeah, 21. Okay. Wow. That I must know. have been so exciting. Oh, it was during the recession as well. So the, during the 91, 92 recession, that period where no one was getting any work. So our graduating year of 30 journalism students, I was the first one to get into the industry. Wow. We had 80 people applying for that one job from all around the country. And the odds were just, I mean, I look back on it, you know, everyone has those seminal moments in their life when they just go, wow, if that hadn't happened, if, because that happened, all these other things happened. Uh, so I was very lucky to get that 
gig and such an important organisation to start in. So you get trained all the right ways, you know. Yeah. So I was so hopeless for so long, the ABC actually didn't put me to air for six months, which was always the tradition. Whereas now young kids, they're just thrown in from day one, even if their writing or their performance or presentation or their understanding of the issue isn't up to scratch because newsrooms now are so underfunded. There aren't the experienced journalists to pick up the slack. If you you just have to go and do it, yeah. which is a good way to learn as well. Yeah. But the way I was taught to learn is that this is the standard you have to meet. And until yeah. you're that standard, we're not letting you anywhere near a microphone <laughs> or a camera. So, um, and it's a really high, high standard, you know, yeah. like you have to be as good as someone who's been doing it for five or eight or 15 yeah. years. I mean, it's a pretty impossible thing you think at 21 that I'll ever yeah. meet. But then they still throw you into my first interview was interviewing the Premier of South Australia. Australia on the steps of Parliament and it was like, I don't even know what to do. I don't know what to ask. Wow. Uh, And I'd hate to think of listening to that back now because it would have just been awful. But you do get thrown in as well as part of the process. But you spend time with directors in the ABC. You know, we we met Andrew Ollie at the time who was um, hosting Four Corners and they take you to different parts of the country and you meet all the other cadets. So it's just this exceptional year of very... um, intense specialist training in all the areas of of television production. So not only journalism, but you get to understand cameramen and editing and um, camera operators, I should say, and the culture. You know, what is the ABC? What is it there for? What what is public broadcasting? Why is it important? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, very, very important year for me, I think. And once you've gone through that, uh, you're blooded basically for life and you're, you're yeah. part of that family. Yeah. And to be an ABC cadet now, other people in the organisation like that, that is special. You know, it's a special way of coming into the organisation. It's it's yeah. very valued. So to hear just this week, it was very sad. The ABC has suspended its cadetship program for next year because of the cuts and because of COVID. It's so devastating because there's yeah. very few ways for young people to get into journalism. Those ABC cadetships are really, really important. So I was I've really felt for you know young kids wanting yeah. to get into the media now with what's going on. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, that is tragic, isn't it? What would you say to, I mean, young people, not just people leaving school and wanting to get into journalism, but it's a pretty um, troubling year all round. What would you say to them, and with the changing media landscape in general, would you say just, you know, start a podcast, create content, get on YouTube, just start creating content and getting out there? Or would you still sort of take the, the path you took of go to uni and get a degree and try and find that professional opportunity? I I think it's a combination of both. I mean, I think both are complementary. I think that what I learnt, and again, university is completely different now and and we're going to find, you know, we've had a huge exodus of uh, lecturers from universities around the country, uni places are being reduced to even get into uni now. Is it an option for most kids? You know, I don't think so. It's so expensive. Uh, I had free education, you know, so these are all things that I want to carry on. You know, I think it's really important for free education and for us to do as much as we can, even in in pandemic, because of a pandemic. It's going to be that generation of people who are going to help come up with all the solutions to the challenges that we have. So universities to me are really important places of learning and creativity and giving you space and time and thought with other like-minded people to come up with these solutions. So I wouldn't say don't go that pathway, but 
also podcasts and, and creating and just doing are a great way to learn, you know. Uh, so if you can combine both of them, if you can afford, you know, uh, university places, uh, definitely go that way. Um, really recommend it. But just keep on this is and this is the hard thing you're going to have so many closed doors you're going to have so many blocks you're going to have so many people that you want to talk to and they'll keep saying no I'm busy I don't have time yet just persevere and persevere and persevere and believe in yourself because they are the skills actually that will make you a good broadcaster or a good journalist you know that you don't take no for an answer and and you don't you know you're resilient and you need to build up resilience in this medium because even when you've been around forever and you've got you know every achievement you could possibly have it happens to everyone you will be thrown out you will be sacked you'll lose your job you'll be made redundant and you've got to find another way back up and and back through it happens to all of us at different stages things don't always work out you think oh well i've already proven myself i've already done all of that Here, here's my cv but that's not how it works anymore. You know, you've got to just keep on doing it, improving your skills. Keep having a sense of, and this is important to me, what is really going on and how to make sure that you know what is really going on, how to read behind the story, how to, you know, connect with people who are understanding something that maybe the broader community isn't looking at, which is how I got involved with climate change and climate science, which was almost 15 years ago when None of my colleagues had heard anything about it. We weren't doing regular stories on it. And I just connected with a group of people that were obsessed with it. They saw what we're going through now uh, 15 years ago. And suddenly I realised this is the biggest story. Why are we not telling this in the media? And fortunately it's starting to be told now, but not nearly every minute of every day the way we need to be told it. And the really important thing is don't just tell us what the problem is, tell us what the solution is at the same time, which yeah. the media is never really good at. It'll tell you, look, all these people are dying in this war, but they won't tell you, well, actually, the reason there's a war there is because they're fighting over water and the reason there's not enough water is because they haven't had rainfall because of the climate change issues. So everything is connected and that's what, you know, working in, in climate science and climate change showed me is that in international news I covered the conflict but I didn't cover the problem with soil or the fight over land because people needed food. It's all connected and the media needs to do a better job of, of actually showing people the connection. That's right. Conflict just doesn't come out of nowhere. That's right. And what you can do about it. Yeah. You know, yeah. Wow, that makes a lot of sense. Tell me with um, the news reading thing, how long were you – doing that not long not actually long. i know because okay. you made feels... quite an impact <laughs> yeah probably <laughs> but no i um i was doing uh, it was only two and a half years at the abc doing right. the national news yep. and then three years at sbs so not long okay. just over five years wow so i'd been reporting for 10 years before that just general news reporting in yeah, all the right. different rounds right, right. working on seven thirty, i hosted that for a bit yeah uh but, yes, the actual news reading thing, yeah, but when you are given that sort of forum and a national show, of course, you know, you yeah. are going to make an impact. Front, yeah. front and centre. I mean, obviously you were given scripts. Did you ever write any of that stuff when yeah. you were news reading? You did? Yeah. You I mean, it's very different in different news programs and shows. Yeah. That doesn't happen at, at some of the other commercial yeah. um, stations. And I was one of the first generation of news presenters that came from reporting. Yeah. There'd been a culture at the ABC before that where you were a news broadcaster. You were the yeah. host of the show, but you weren't necessarily a journalist. That wasn't your training. Yeah. But you were just very good at conveying information very well. Well, yeah, you brought your personality to it um, and that's one of the reasons why, you, you know, you did make that impact. 
How did you begin the nightly news? What What did you say? Do you oh, remember? I don't even remember. Um, I used to say, good evening, this is Indira and I do with SBS News or ABC News. Yeah, it was pretty straightforward, really. <laughs> Sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow. So, um, oh, look, look what I found just here. Oh, <laughs> the Edible City, yep. So, I've loved your books. I must say, I hadn't read them before, but when I knew we were going to have a chat, I'm like, wow, well, I better check them out. And I love your writing. Oh, thank you. Like, it's, uh, I mean, you're funny. (laughs) (laughs) I love your sense of humour. And I also love, I think you're a great poet. Would you mind reading me this one? This is my favourite thing that that I've read from reading the two books. Oh, okay. Would you mind reading that yeah, to sure. us now? This is a poem at the beginning of The Edible City, and we'll talk a bit more about this book in a sec. But Okay. Resistance is fertile. As I've been travelling the length and breadth of this great southern land, I've been witnessing a momentous change. There's a quiet revolution rolling through our cities. Urban armies are being mobilised across the country, in parks, along footpaths, in schools, even on rooftops. The troops in these battalions are difficult to detect. They dress like civilians. Instead of camouflage fatigues, you'll see gumboots. Instead of wearing helmets, they wear sun hats. Instead of carrying rifles, they carry rakes. Instead of tanks, there are wheelbarrows. And to mark their conquest, they're not raising flags, they're raising garden beds. These green gorillas are on a mission to convert wasted urban land into productive spaces to grow food. If it's made from concrete or tarmac, it's on their hit list. No footpath is safe, no road is protected, no roof is immune. They want to liberate what lies beneath and they won't rest until they've given life back to the soil and help plants reclaim their rightful throne. They know there will be resistance, but with missionary zeal, rules, bylaws, ordinances and courts will be quietly challenged and struck down. These liberators will install a new green order where vegetables will be free to grow throughout cities without fear. I've watched and documented their silent insurgency with shock and awe. These are their stories. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Thank you. That was a real treat. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. So you've written a couple of books. You were actually sitting um, in your apartment on the 13th floor Mm -hmm. um, and this is where your first book was inspired. Can you tell us a little about how that came to be? I was actually at the farmer's market uh, down the road in Moore Park and I was just doing my usual morning shopping, Wednesday shopping, and a farmer who had a stall there, offered me a little tiny cherry tomato. And I was busy, you know, grabbing all my bags. And I went, oh, thanks, that's lovely, and just popped it in my mouth and kept walking. And then I bit into it and it was the sweetest, juiciest thing I'd ever eaten. And it had this lovely crisp skin as well, which so many tomatoes don't have anymore. They're flavourless and soggy, you know, the things you can get in the supermarket. And I was just quite amazed by this flavour implosion. And I went back to him and I said, where'd you get this tomato? How do I get more? And he said, oh, I grow them myself. And I went, wow, do you? And he said, yeah, they're an heirloom variety. You don't find them in supermarkets. And I pick them just when they're ripe. So they've stayed on the vine and they're really, you know, rich and flavourful and full of all the sugars. And I said, well, how can I get more of them? And he said, well, you can buy lots of my tomatoes and then save some of the tomatoes, squeeze out the seeds, dry them out and then plant them and then you can have your own tomatoes. And I went, 
wow, really? I can grow tomatoes just from the seeds of these tomatoes. And he said, yeah. And I said, but I only live in a small apartment with a tiny balcony. And he said, that's all right. You just need a pot with some soil, a little bit of fertiliser and off you go and you'll have tomatoes in a couple of months' time. So I took those tomatoes back and I made this pasta sauce. I saved some of the seeds and I went... I've never gardened. This is not going to work. I don't even know what I'm doing. And I put those seeds in the pot and lo and behold, they sprouted. And until actually very recently, over the last 15 years, I've been going growing tomatoes every year from the seeds from that first tomato. I keep saving them and regrowing them. And that was what set me off because the first time you grow something successfully and then eat what you've grown, it is just this is just the best thing that's ever happened. Why has no one ever told me about this before? Wow. And then you get the bug. And then after that, you want to grow everything else. What about capsicum? What about zucchinis? What about chilies and lettuces and basil? And then you get a bit heady and you grow too much and you don't have enough room and there's nowhere to dry the clothes and your husband loses his, you know, <laughs> shit with you. <laughs> and then you go, okay, let me just wind it all back. Because at one stage it was a real jungle out there when I was at, at the peak of my, my crazy woman gardening. But now it's a little bit more manageable and, and I've sort of got it a bit under control. But it made me realise how much we can grow ourselves that we don't, how much where our food comes from we have no idea about. I didn't know where my tomatoes came from, who grew them, what was sprayed on them. Uh, and they and the thing, though, that really keeps you hooked is the taste. The taste and the flavour of what you grow yourself is just incomparable to anything you can buy in the supermarkets and you just want to keep having that experience again. So that's what has kept me growing. And the first book was based on all my adventures, things that went right, things that went wrong, my obsession, not wanting to travel because I was leaving my babies behind, getting the concierge in my apartment block to look after my plants while I was away and <laughs> ringing from New York saying, I heard that there's a storm coming into Potts Point. What's happening on the balcony? And he's going, oh, God. And I go, you've got to go up there, Daryl and check it out. Anyway, it was quite hilarious just how obsessive you became. And then everything that I grew, I then developed some recipes and then cooked them in recipes. So that first book was about, yeah, that that wonder. It's almost like being a, a, a new parent or a first-time mother and realising, you know, there's lots of stresses, but the joys are just sort of, you know, multiple. And um, realising that, yeah, most people can grow uh, things and you don't need much space. Even just a windowsill, you can grow things. So I wanted to share that story in the edible balcony. And yeah, the book became this huge bestseller because most people were going through a similar thing I was going through. They were thinking, why is my food not tasting good? Um, that joy of putting your hands in the soil and watching something grow from seed is something that it's very deep in us as human beings. You know, we have always grown our own food. All our parents and grandparents' generations, that's what they did. They all had a veggie patch. And this disconnection, we think, is sophistication. We can go to a restaurant or go to a supermarket. But really, we've lost contact with what it is to be, you know, human. We are part of nature. We like to immerse ourselves in nature. And just because we're surrounded by concrete and steel, it doesn't mean we can't have that nature connection. So that book did really well. And then I did the second book, The Edible city that I just wrote from, which was how different communities were connecting with nature in the, the very small spaces of urban, you know, concrete that they had, whether it was converting rooftops or keeping bees or having worm farms. And then all the different communities that are using food to, you know, be more resilient, more connected. So, you know, Indigenous schools, um, asylum seekers, 
uh, a homeless community I'm very closely connected with, the, the Wayside Chapel here in Potts Point. So that was really lovely, showing that food can be a way to give people a sense of togetherness when they're in, in strife or difficult situations. It can help them feel self-sufficient. They don't have, you know, because food is expensive. When you grow your own food, you're saving a lot of money as well. Uh, and it can be a place too where, especially in the the, eth- the um, asylum seeker community, where you can grow food from your place. Because if you go to the supermarket, you're not going to find your cassava that you're used to having if you're from, you know, Fiji or something, or you're not going to find your particular thing from yeah. um, Sudan. So when you grow your own food, it's easy for you to feel I'm still connected to my home. I'm having the food I yeah. love to eat. So they were beautiful stories to also share in the second book. Yeah, it's lovely. I love the hearty recipes. Yeah. I, I like hearty food. I yeah, don't do like you? it too tricky. You know, meat, fish, veggies, yeah. you know, a bit of spice. And um, and so I, it resonated with me. How long ago was this one released? Five years. Five years. Wow. Yeah. That's great. It's a great cover too, isn't it? Thank you. I've never grown vegetables, but as a teenager, I, you know, grew a few dope plants. Yep. And um, I remember the thrill of them growing and throwing the seeds out in the garden. And then I remember my father out there with a the lawnmower as I'm helping him, grumbling and going, what are these bloody ugly plants of your mother's out here? And down <laughs> It's a story I never told in the edible balcony, but I, um, I do talk about it, is when I started growing those tomatoes, because the dope plants, marijuana and tomatoes, same family. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're from the same nightshade family. So they grow very similarly. So as you would have done with your dope plants, you would have pinched the side shoots so you would have got big heads on your plants, yeah. which is what you do on tomatoes. You pinch the side shoots to get big tomatoes. Wow. Okay. Now, I didn't know that, but who taught me? My husband, because he grew dope plants when he was a kid as well. And so he'd say, oh, you have to pinch out these side shoots. And I'd go... How do you know that? And he goes, well, so it's same as a dope plant. You have to do that sort of thing. So that wow. was actually my first garden lesson was from my husband because of his experience growing dope. Wow. Wow. Well, when you next talk to my wife, ask her about the gardening thing because she went through a similar obsession oh, for about four years, completely obsessed in the garden, growing everything and wow. anything. So there's uh, there's another parallel. <laughs> Ah, uh, wow. And, I yeah, I really like the Wayside Chapel. Wayside Chapel? Yeah, the yeah. Wayside Chapel. I was going to say Mission, but no. Um, yeah, really loved that story. And, yeah, what what a beautiful thing yeah. that, that was created and continues to be created. Yeah, they're a beautiful community. I, I think one of my most important connections that I have in my life is, is my connection to the Wayside Chapel, and I'm very fortunate how close it is. So I can spend a lot of time physically there, physically on the roof, uh, and we've got beehives as well. And I talk about Kylie Kwong, the restaurateur, her old restaurant was across the road. So she would collect a lot of that honey and use it in her recipes in her restaurant, which was always just so lovely to know that then, you know, you might be having a pork bun at Kylie's, but there was a connection to the wayside and our bees and that beautiful story. Yeah, that's lovely. And so any more books in the pipeline? I am working on a third book at the moment, actually. Oh, bar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Similar so line or something different? It's got aspects to do with nature, okay, but more to do with what we're going through at the moment, you know, where there's a little bit of upheaval and nature, it can have very positive healing benefits to us at this time. So it's more an exploration of um, how we can heal when we're feeling anxious and, and alone. Wow. I like the sound of that. Mm. Um, I mean, certainly one of the concerning things that's happening this year is how much that is being lost and that the solutions for 
ill health that we're looking at and the alternative medicines are just being, you know, hammered and nullified and yet they offer so many answers and have been helping people for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. I don't want just the big pharma solution. I want to know what else there is. Yeah. And that, you know, it brings us back to the nightly news. It's one of the reasons why I've turned off the nightly news. Yeah. They seem to have so much influence over, you know, what's disseminated. Yeah. Well, I find if I can, there's one, I've got a favourite tree in the, at the Botanic Gardens and it's this lovely old Moreton Bay fig and it was planted in about 1860, 1870. So it's a really old girl mm. and huge, huge branches. Yeah. And one of the things I love about trees is not just the shade, but the dappled light that comes through. Yeah. And when you start researching about how important that was for us as humans, when we were, you know, going way back to Neanderthal years, where you want to be in some light, but you want the protection of being a bit dark, you know, in case animals were coming to get you. Yeah. So trees were really important places where you could feel safe and protected, but you had a little bit of light coming through that you can also watch what was going on. Yeah. And for us, it's the most perfect calming light is a dappled light. So a little bit of shade and a little bit of light coming through. Yeah. And when you sit under a tree like that, that allows light to come through, mm. I can tell you nothing heals you better than that. I mean, wow. it, there's no drug, there's no coffee, there's no whatever chemical. To sit under that sort of tree is just the most, it's just being covered in this extraordinary balm. Um, yeah, I, I, I use it often because I do my morning walks there and I use it often. I'll try to have enough time put aside so I'll have time to just to sit and just be under the tree and um, and sometimes touch the bark, you know, and, and feel the bark and feel the energy of the tree and imagine all the stuff that it's seen and it's survived because that tree would have gone through the pandemic of 1916 and survive that, you know, it would have seen the humans of that time petrified wow. the way we are. What does this mean? How is this changing our life? Because of where it is in Woolloomooloo, that was where a lot of our troops left to go to the First World War. So it would have seen these poor young boys being sent off to war, not knowing what was happening. Then these damaged men returning and then reuniting with their family. That tree saw all of that. Well, so when I just I, got goosebumps then. Yeah. So I sit under that tree and I think about what it's seen, it's wisdom, how it survives. And one of the things that growing things has shown me is when I look at trees, I think here we are as humans, we think we're much more sophisticated than plants and trees. And in a day I've run to the supermarket to get my food. I've had to go here to get this. I've had to go there to find my shelter. And it's this heady sort of crazy life. But a tree has stayed in one place all day and it's got everything that it needs. It's got all its food. It's got all its water. It protects itself. It looks after itself. It shelters itself. Now, isn't that the most zen idea ever? Now, that tree has got it sorted out. We've got no idea. Wow. So trees for me are just these extraordinary beings. So mm. that's one of the things that I'm now going more into, you know, like sort of a little bit of like becoming a bit of a tree. Well, people, I mean, people that's call beautiful. it tree hugging, forest yeah. bathing, whatever it is. Yeah. But um, I can see where having that still time in the presence of that ancient, knowing, wise sort of natural presence, how beneficial that can actually be to us at this time. That's beautiful. Wow. Is that the first chapter? No, it's not the first chapter. Yeah, but it's, but it's a couple of chapters in. Oh, yeah. that's gorgeous. I'm um, never going to look at those Morton Bay um, 
not figs. Are they yeah, figs? figs. They are figs. Yeah, Modern and they have, figs. And they have real the figs again. on them as wow. well. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, because I used to get the Manly Ferry to school, um, and you know, come through that neck of the woods, and you're right. So many things have changed, but they're still there doing their thing. Mm. Wow, incredible. Hey, you seem to have navigated, you know, life in the public eye extremely well. Right you know, I've, I don't think I've ever heard a bad thing about you. I'm sure it's out there somewhere if I really don't. Oh, yeah, we really <laughs> dig in. <laughs> but, um, I was just lucky uh, cameras went around when it, you know, I was in the gutter <laughs> vomiting, throwing up. No. Ah, ah. Yeah, I'm glad social media wasn't around well, when we were kids. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm yeah. sure that that. I've been very lucky with that. Yeah, 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 good timing. Yeah. Any advice for people out there that are, you know, in the public eye or launching into it? Any thoughts you have on that and even on social media and how people navigate I those think, challenges? I think um, going into the media for me or journalism, and I was very lucky the ABC was my pathway in because there was always a seriousness about what we were doing. It was never about getting a profile or getting fame or status or money or power or any of those other things that I think can be the traps, you know, in public life and, and in media. It was always about you're here for the public good. You're here to tell stories. You're here to represent your community. You're here to um, hold a mirror to power um, keep politicians and, and, and the rich and the wealthy accountable. It, it was always those big ideas. I mean, you think of it. Sounds lofty, but I know, that's, that's that, how it that was. That really was how it was. Yeah. And you were never allowed to get out of control. Like any time the ABC community was always about there was never really any praise for anything you did which is probably not the best thing because obviously you deserve some praise. Yeah. They never allowed it to get out of control. It was an era where ego was seen as a very bad thing, um, that, you know, you were never bigger than the show or the program or the organisation or your team. You know, you were just one of a member of sometimes it was 20 people yeah. that would bring that one-minute story to air. So it was never really about you. And even as a news presenter in those environments, you were just telling the story and the work of all these other people and, and all their people that they'd interviewed. So you were just a conduit again. It wasn't about you per se. And that was always emphasised in that culture. I know it's not like that now and um, it, it wasn't like that in a lot of commercial organisations before. So if you don't grow up with that as a culture, of always being reminded it's not about you. Yeah. It, you can get a bit carried away with it, I guess. So I was very lucky that I had lots of support. It, it was a family, you know, yeah. so they protected you. You learnt from other people's mistakes. You saw when other things went wrong with other people and you went, yeah. shit, I don't want that to be on the front page of, you know, TV week, you know, so I've got to be careful about how I behave. You know, you're always on show. You're always a representative of your organisation. And I always saw it as a privilege, you know, that you were there. It was. It's always been, it's been fun, but it's always felt like a duty. It's yeah. always felt like... I guess the way the Queen would feel about being the Queen, I don't think she wakes up and goes, oh, I've got this fabulous crown to wear today and all these jewels sparkling on my head. I don't really think she thinks like that. I think she thinks, oh, my God, Queen Victoria wore this, you know, great, great, great granny and all the stuff that this represents and all these people and all these constituents that look to the monarchy and whatever it is. Uh, 
I think that that's how she wakes up and I think that that's why she's had this amazing longevity even though other members of the royal family have all, you know, fallen by the wayside. Uh, she's kept the focus on, you know, and I have lots of problems with what monarchy is and what it represents, don't get me wrong, but I'm still a big admirer of her as a person, as a leader, as a woman, um, as a mother and as a grandmother because I know <laughs> – in this era to still maintain what a lot of people would see as as very um, archaic ways and laws, the fact that she's been able to keep pushing that through, keeping all these countries under her. I mean, the, the Republican movement's never had less support than it has at the moment in Australia because everyone just loves her so much, you know. So she's, she's incredible. But I think that even from someone like Queen Elizabeth, I see a lot of positives, you know, that she does put the role ahead of her. Yeah. 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 When did you become aware of your purpose? Like you seem to love to help in whatever you do. Do, do you think that came to you when you were really, really little? You had this sort of burning purpose or was it a result of your parenting and your education and all the rest of it? What do yeah, you th- a combination probably. Right. Um, We've always been made to feel since we were little about how lucky we were, what a privilege, and all these people didn't get all the things that yeah. that came our way. And I know parents can say that to their children. Some children get it and other children don't, you know. Yeah. But I totally got that all the time. I, yeah. I just always went, wow, look at all those kids starving there. Look at my cousins who are still trapped back in South Africa that haven't had the schooling and education and work opportunities that I've had. So... Uh, and because we moved around a lot, I was able to constantly see it. Whereas I think the hard thing with a lot of kids, if even if you come from an ethnic or, or migrant community, you are only exposed to that group all your life. Yeah. Whereas we kept being lifted out of groups and put into new groups. And so yeah. we could constantly see the value of things. You know, we could see why maybe just being obsessed with academia and study isn't such a good thing because this is what could happen. Yeah, Whereas right. if you're only trapped in that one space all the time, you can get caught up in it a bit. So yeah. because we moved around, there were always be exposed to different people who needed different sorts of help, I guess. And yeah, often right. we were lucky enough to be in situations where we could help, I guess. So, right. yeah, I, I am a helper in a way that my husband finds very frustrating. You know, we'll be in New York, for instance, Grand Central Station, and someone will come up to me. I'm, I'm a traveller and tourist myself. Someone will come up to me and say, oh, can you tell me the way to get to, you know, this, this particular, you know, place? And I have no idea. And I'll try to help them and I'll look at the map and I'll go, yeah, look, if you get onto this train on the red line and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and, and then my husband will say after I've helped this person, you have no idea. You sent them in the complete opposite direction. They're going to go off to Harlem now instead. Uh, so I do want to help even when I've got no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. That's so cute. Hey, um, we're about to wrap it up, but on a couple of silly notes, mm. um, can we talk about a couple of, you I've know, done a lot of silly things. Done, done a few silly things. So thank you for those. They've been highly entertaining. Um, the duet with uh, the Ebony and, Iri- <laughs> Ebony and Ivory duet with Helen Razor on Triple J. Um, tell us a little about that. It actually came from Mikey Robbins. I was interviewed on their morning show when they both hosted Breakfast on Triple J, uh, Helen and Mikey. And Pauline Hanson had just been uh, elected to the House of Representatives, 1996 or something, I think it was. And there was a lot of concern about some of her uh, racist ideas and that she now had a 
platform to express them very widely. And we were talking about how concerning this was going to be for the quality of, you know, political discussion. And Helen and I would, you know, we had very similar views about that. And Mikey then said, you guys need to uh, do something, you know, to raise awareness of, uh, about Pauline Hanson and, and her racism. Why don't you do a version of Ebony and Ivory? Because Helen is so pale and you are so brown, it would actually look really good. Now, neither of us, as you could tell from this, the CD, uh, can sing, but we didn't let that stop it. So that was the idea. That's where it came from. And fortunately, ABC Radio, when we sold it to them as an idea, said, that's a great idea. Can't imagine it happening now. Can you imagine an organisation putting out an anti-racism record like the ABC now? But yeah. in those days, they thought, great. Yeah. So that's what we did. And uh, Simon Binks, who a, was a drummer in Australian Cruel, heard about it. And his wife, who I think is Thai, was experiencing some racism because of Pauline Hanson's comments. So he then came on as a producer and, yeah, we, we put out the track, Ebony and Ivory. Now, funnily enough, even though it sounds terrible, <laughs> we sold 10,000 um, records. It got into the top 40. And we raised money from the sales for Koori Radio, which was a local Indigenous radio station in, in Redfern. So we made the point and we got a lot of media coverage about it and we, we did what we wanted to do is just to remind Australians how important it is for us to celebrate diversity and, and come together and, and make sure those voices are shut down as soon as we hear them. It was, it was a great initiative and well done. <laughs> so, and okay, Club Buggery, there's another show that um, in 2020 clearly wouldn't be commissioned, but being a Roy and HG fan, I'm mm. glad it was. Um, Kate was actually often, oh, on, often, often on the on show yeah, and I, I believe I, on the same show when me. you were on. Yeah. So um, I think that's probably about the first time I, was, I, I, I remember seeing you and going, oh, okay, wow, actually she's not just, you know, a talking head. <laughs> and and uh, an insight into your sense of humour. So um, tell me about that role as a policewoman on Club Buggery. So, again, the green room at the ABC, and this was the old Gore Hill headquarters of the ABC, was right next to the makeup room. So I'd go, you know, and do my boring news bulletin, and then I'd come back into makeup, and there'd be the Jane Scarley dancers or there'd be the bananas in pyjamas and or there'd be, you know, some amazing Australian singer or Daryl Braithwaite or something and they'd be going into the green room to do this show called Club Buggery, which I knew and I loved and, and I was a huge fan of and I'd stay up on Friday nights myself when I was back in Adelaide watching it. And then one day Greg and John, Roy and HG, were in makeup and it was like, oh, my God, it's Greg and John, oh, my God. <laughs> so we got talking and you don't think about this, but, of course, they had been watching me doing the news and the Greg was going, oh, we're such fans of yours. And I'm going, really? Oh, of course. Well, I'm on television. Of course you would have seen me. But you sort of forget that there's that other thing. And they said, we've got this role. We're writing this uh, little bit of drama. Can you play a policewoman for it? And, of course, I wasn't an actor and I couldn't act for to save myself, but the idea of being on a skip on Roy and HG's Club Buggery, of course, yes. So um, so there I was, obviously playing a straight news reading role, but I wasn't thinking about that. It was more to that I get to hang out with Roy and HG. Right. And the newsroom didn't think anything of it. They said, sure, you know, uh, again, that would not be probably what would happen today. And I remember that first day dressing up in a police, a New South Wales police, you know, costume and the hat and the, all that sort of stuff. And uh, 
and then running around and just doing stupid things, you know, with the guys and but really good quality actors, you know, who were performing with me. Like Bill Hunter was the inspector on the series and all these uh, small roles other people would come in through and just going, wow, when you're a kid, this is what you dream of, that you get to hang out and be silly and dress up as a policewoman or something um, and just play, you know. So we did that for a couple of years to an extent that people saw me who only didn't watch the news but watched that thought of me as a policewoman. <laughs> and at the end of that year I was asked to host the end of year New South Wales, you know, Christmas party for the Police Association. <laughs> So it was like, uh, no, I don't know if I can do that. No, because I don't really have anything to do with the police and I don't know anything about it and it's probably not appropriate. And But by then, yeah, it had sort of become something else, had it become a life of its own. But it was so much fun to do that and, yeah, and hang, hang out with them all. That's gold. Mm. Love it. Well, we better wrap this up. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Nick. You're a national treasure. Oh, And thank Thank you you. for all your fine work. Yeah, thanks. Okay, cool. See ya. Well, that's it for another week. I encourage you to listen to Indira on her ABC show, Weekend Nightlife. I reckon she's one of the best interviewers in the biz and that voice, I could listen to it all night. Next week's guest is creator, writer, director, comedian and actor, Nick Bosher. Nick's one of the genuine YouTube trailblazers, creating no-budget content as a side hustle with Bondi Hipsters, Beach Daz, and Trent from Punchy, and converting these viral hits into an Emmy-winning career with Seven Days Later, Soulmates, Retrograde, and soon-to-be-released Doodles, which is a multi-platform and interactive animated comedy for the ABC. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate the show, give it a quick review, subscribe, whether it's on that platform or any of the other ones you're listening to these podcasts on. Until next week, live large. The Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc. and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Millevich production. Production.